Greetings, Assalamu alaikum, welcome everyone. My name is Saqib Safta and I'm your uh, host um, and also the founder of the Hikma Project. Today we'll be speaking to Jane Clark on her journey from physics to metaphysics and that of Ibn Arabi in particular. But before we get into that, just a few updates. There's a new Hikma Project site. It's still the same web address, thehikmaproject.com. Do uh, pay us a visit. Um, the podcasts are free. You can also click on subscribe and through the various podcasting platforms, uh, subscribe to our podcasts. Um, you can register as a free member. So whenever there's a new post, you'll be notified. But also, please do consider supporting the Hikma project, either through a one-off payment or uh, by becoming a member, it's literally about the cup of about a cup of coffee per month, and you get access to all the posts in which they are um, good quality transcripts, summaries of the posts, as well as any accompanying material to the podcast. And you also get an invite to the weekly reading circle. We are currently reading Imam Ali from Concise History to Timeless Mystery and are on chapter 2 um, and that's held at 7.30pm to 9pm UK time every Thursdays. Um, the recordings are available uh, as well if you can't make those times. So today we speak to Jane Clark, um, a very interesting person. She is a senior research fellow of the Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi Society and has worked particularly on the Society's archiving projects as well as looking after the library. She's been quite involved in preserving some classical manuscripts of Ibn Arabi, uh, as she will explain. Uh, she started off as a, uh, or she first discovered Ibn Arabi when she was a PhD student studying quantum physics and was looking for a more comprehensive view of the world and stumbled across Ibn Arabi um, and um, this was sort of being raised as an atheist or as an agnostic and so she had no cult uh, religious inclination or wasn't seeking uh, the truth or um, you know uh, exploring various religious traditions but she came across Ibn Arabi and things changed and then she spent over 40 years studying Ibn Arabi and learning Arabic um, she is engaged in teaching courses and lecturing on this thought both in the UK and abroad and in um, uh, researching and translation uh, translation of the Arabian heritage. Um, she organises the Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi Society Young Writers Award as well as being uh, a co-founder of the Journal of Consciousness Studies and is also currently editor of the Bishara magazine. So, without further ado, here's a podcast. Welcome, Jane. Lovely to have you on the Hikma Project podcast. Lovely to be here. So, just to start off, could you tell us about your journey to Ibn Arabi? What led you to him? No, in inverted commas, it was a kind of coincidence because I, I had no initial interest in Ibn Arabi or in fact in any kind of spirituality. Um, I came across Ibn Arabi in my mid-twenties when I was um, 
at a student at Warwick University. I was doing a PhD in um, solid state physics, which is a branch of quantum physics. And I was living in Leamington Spa and there was a lot of conversation about, about spirituality and people were looking at different gurus and such like, but I was quite a hard-nosed scientist actually. And I, I wasn't particularly interested in this, but one day somebody said, as people did, you know, oh, it's a Sunday afternoon, we're driving down to this place called Swire Farm in Gloucestershire, which was maybe an hour and a half away from Leamington. And so I went along for the ride, really. Um, and we went to Spire Farm, which was the first of the centres for the Basharas for the Bashara School, and it was a beautiful place in in Gloucestershire. And they had a study group in the afternoon in which they were reading uh, this introduction to Ibn Arabi, which is called the twenty, which became called the twenty nine pages, because of its uh, original length. And we joined in that. That, that study group. And I had no idea what was being said. I was completely un, ungrounded in any kind of theology. I'd been brought up by my parents to be as an atheist. Um, I didn't have a Christian background or anything like that, over and above what you picked up through school and such like. Um, so I had no idea what people were really talking about in that study group. But still, I got a sense that the, this was something that I wanted. And that's extraordinary to think back about that. I wasn't happy as a physicist. I was actually on the brink of giving up my PhD uh, because I had a sense of looking. I wanted something that was, in a way, a kind of answer to everything, I suppose you would say. I was looking for a really integrated theory and somehow or other I picked up that that was it. And then soon after that, I gave up my physics PhD um, and I went into um, community work. I became quite political for a few years and I used to go back to occasionally to Swire Farm because I'd liked it so much but I was not at all serious about it. And then I had a, a little series of incidents and I had a, a, a car accident. In fact, I, a motorbike accident. I used to drive a little motorbike and um, somebody came out in front of me, absolute point blank and nearly killed me. And I was unconscious and I had a, a certain kind of experience then, um, which changed things for me I think and then a few months after that I was a long time in convalescence my hands were completely smashed up by this accident mm -hmm. uh, so I was five six months in in convalescence and during that time I went back down to Swire Farm um, for a for a period and that's when it got it got serious so you know I had this initial introduction and then and then when I went back after the after the motorbike accident, it was clear that this was something that was opening up for me. So then I ended up going on on a on a long intensive course, which was run by the Bashara Bashara School. They 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 used to do eight month intensive courses of study. 
Um, oh, wow. So that, that's when it got serious. Yeah. And, and for our listeners who, who might not be familiar with your background, how many years have you been studying Ibn Arabi for? Well, I started, I wouldn't count my first encounter, which was in about 1974, but I went on my first intensive course in 1977. And wow. these intensive courses had been set up um, by a man called Bulent Rauf, who was a Turkish man, and he had a he had come up through the Turkish Sufi tradition, and his parents, his family, had a, a strong connection to Ibn Arabi. In fact, his grandfather is buried in Ibn Arabi's tomb hmm. uh, in, in Damascus, because Bulent was quite an aristocratic kind of an Ottoman uh, hmm. Turk. Uh, and so his family, his, fa- his grandfather had been the governor of, of Damascus. But his mother, some of the material that we used on later courses had come through his mother. So Bulent had this strong connection to Ibn Arabi. And in, in the UK, he had initiated really the study of Ibn Arabi. Um, and when he set these long courses up, the core curriculum at the beginning of these courses was the study of Ibn Arabi. So we read 29 pages and then we read chapters from the Fasus al-Hikam. And then after that, we moved on to look at some of the other traditions. So it's not a, and Bashara is not a, a denominational school. It's not a school of, of, of an Islamic school. So after we'd studied Ibn Arabi, we went on to look at the Christian tradition and we looked at Bhagavad Gita, Tao Te Ching and such like. But the fundamental grounding was the study of Ibn Arabi's metaphysics because Bulent said, well, you no, know, he lays out the unity of existence in the most explicit way. So you start with that, that's your grounding. And then from there, you can look at all the other traditions and you can study other things. But the perspective, the unified perspective is established through Ibn Arabi's teachings. So I happen to have a background in physics. Physicist's mind is obviously very mathematical, very calculated. Obviously, there's a role of intuition, which Einstein constantly sort of talks about. And as you know, we have these sparks of creativity, but it's very different to, um, I mean, if you took the scientific mind and tried to critique metaphysics or religion, you often end up in these scenarios similar to Richard Dawkins, actually saying, where is the objective sort of evidence for X, Y, Z. And so what happened when you were studying Ibn Arabi, were these mere concepts you agreed with, or was it more than just an academic study in which there was a level of uh, intellectual agreement or disagreement? Well, I think, well, certainly at the Bashara school, it's not academic study. These courses were not academic courses. They were residential courses. We were we were involved in uh, was laid out in four into four aspects. So one of them was study of material, working with the mind. One of them was meditation. One of them was work, which is a service, doing making you know serving 
the world, serving your fellow students, etc. And the and the fourth one was devotional practice. So those were the four elements of the course. So the and the and the underlying aim of the courses was and is within because Bashara is still going the same form of intensive course is no longer going, but Bashara as an educational organisation is still going. The aim is always self-knowledge. So it's not knowledge of the world. And that's the distinction, really, I think, between what you would say a physicist is trying to do. Um, you're trying to find out about the external world. Whereas what we were introduced to in the Bashara school was that um, knowledge is based on your own self-knowledge not knowledge of of who you are and so that includes all aspects of yourself and that's what did attract me initially as I said to Ibnarevi because you could see that physics was sort of edging towards a kind of unified perspective you know contemporary physics Mm. it does this but it's very, it's absolutely in the intellect and it's not integrating the rest of your, the rest of the, the cons, you know, the human constitution, mm. <laughs> you know, your emotions, your actions, et cetera, et cetera. So the Bashara schools were aimed to at that level of knowledge of actually being a, if you like, a transformative person, personally transformative knowledge, not just facts or information about mm. the world. I'd like to read out a passage from the Futuhat of Makiya, which I know they use at Bashara often at the beginning of reading uh, text together. And it sets the intention. And this is from Book One, Book One, Chapter 89, from 26 to 30. We empty our hearts of reflective thinking and we sit together with God, Al Haq, on the carpet of Adab and spiritual attentiveness, Murakabah and presence and readiness to receive whatever comes to us from him so that it is God who takes care of teaching us by means of unveiling and spiritual realization. So when they have focused their hearts and their spiritual aspirations on God and have truly taken refuge with him, giving up any reliance on the claims of reflection and investigation and intellectual results, then their hearts are purified and open. Once they have this inner receptivity, God manifests himself to them, teaching them and informing them through the direct vision of the inner meaning of those words and reports in a single instant. Could you comment on that and elaborate on what that means to you and what Ibn Arabi uh, might have meant by that? Well, this is a... um might be an even larger subject than you think, actually. Um, so one thing that we're talking about the purpose of the Bashara courses and, and self-knowledge, one of the things that was emphasised on those was um, what is called a, um, was, was the, the, the making of each individual, making a connection with reality, with the one reality making their own connection with that. So there are ways where spiritual paths, where in fact you would come under the, you know, the influence of a teacher or in many Sufi tariqas, you would 
you know, there would be a shake and they would take you through different stages and, and such like, meaning that at least in the early stages, and I'm quite aware that this is a subtle matter um, um, of, of how this process of, of spiritual education works, um, but at least in the early stages, you're kind of under somebody else's order. But within the Bishara school, that was never, that was overtly, explicitly never the case. It was set up as a place where there were no teachers or gurus, um, but it was to do with each person making this private connection with the one reality. And this is very, very much in line with the way that Ibn Arabi talks about it. I mean, the idea comes from Ibn Arabi, really. Um, and he calls this the private face or the this particular face, the Wajal Khas. Um, so this is like a sort of private umbilical cord between each person and, 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 the, and them and the one reality. Um, and there is no, no intermediary in that, that connection, it's direct. And this is what this passage is, is pointing towards, um, that when you sit down and you, and, and, and you study a text like the Fusu Salhikam, um, in fact, you do say particularly the Fusu Salhikam, actually I'll explain why I say that in a minute, um, but any, text, any spiritual text, then from Ibn Arabi's point of view, you're not receiving you know, the knowledge, you're not imbibing the knowledge of the text as such. You're putting yourself into the place to receive knowledge from the place from which that text originally came. I mean, he would say this about Quran as well, mm. that when somebody sits down to study the Quran, then what they're doing is placing themselves in the situation of receiving that knowledge from the same place that it came to Muhammad. So the Quran does not become an in intermediary in your knowledge, in your knowledge of, of, of yourself or your knowledge of God. I say particularly, there's a very, very vivid example of this, which I hope I can remember accurately. So there's a sort of little line of teaching from Ibn Arabi. So his chief, his principal disciple was Sadruddin Konavi, who was probably his son-in-law. And as you know, um, was a, had a, um, an establishment in Konya. Um, and Sadruddin Konavi took on pupils, one of whom was called Al-Jandi, Muwaddin Al-Jandi, uh, who, who was uh, one of the earlier commentators upon the Fazus al-Hikam. And Al-Jandi, in a passage, describes um, an incident where he, he studied Fazus al-Hikam with Sadrin Konavi. And he describes, and he says that he, you know, he sat down to it and they were reading the introduction. And as he was reading the introduction, he received a, a kind of revelation. He went into a state in which he was sort of trembling and um, overtaken. And 
in that instant, the whole meaning of the Fasus was revealed to him directly from the source from which it was written. So, and so it, the process of teaching for him, this what he's trying to point out is to this matter of this private faith, that his, his imbibing of the, of the knowledge of the Vasus from Conovy was not by means of going through it in an intellectual way, sort of unpicking every single thing, a single word, but by a kind of revelation from the same source. And then he, so he, he told Sajradin Conovy, went to the happen, he says, look, this has just happened. And Sajradin Conovy said, ah, oh, he said, that's just the same as happened to me when I sat down to read it with, 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 with the shape. So, <laughs> so well, there's a specific so this is a specific teaching example of what of what this passage you've read out i think is pointing at that the that the the, the this direct the, the knowledge is received directly from the source this isn't doesn't really come down through through a kind of line of transmission where you're receiving the book and then you're sort of, you've got the knowledge of the book, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's coming directly from God. So that's how I would read what, what, you're, what you're talking about. That's amazing. And that actually reminds me about a, I wouldn't say it's a controversial topic, but it's one that obviously people have very clear views on in in the Sufi tradition, and and that's around the role of text. Uh, And and one school of thought is to do away with text and engage in zikr and practice, because it's the experience that will, the tasting that will, you know, give you what you need. But clearly Ibn Arabi has written books that were, in his perspective, what he was not the author of them, they were given to him. And he was simply the scribe who wrote down everything that came to him, often in an instant. Uh, And I believe in the Fasus, in the introduction, he says uh, that this is for the Ahlullah and the Ashabul Qalub, the people of God and the the, the people of the heart. Yeah. Uh, so, so, So clearly there is a role of the text in his teaching which is yeah. not just mere academic study. It's He's addressing an audience yeah. who are presumably quite spiritually evolved, uh, but it's not a series of do's and don'ts or uh, uh, academic concepts. There, there's something deeper going on there. So what would you say to this idea of, or the school of thought in which some mystics just put texts aside? And, and by extension, I'd probably add Rumi just because of the era and, and the volumes he wrote in terms of Masnavi and Divani Shams, and, you know, obviously it's yeah, elaborating yeah. on love, but yeah. he, yet he has so much to teach and show. So, yeah. so what role does text play for a mystic? Well, I mean, with Ibn Arabi, with the, the Ibn Arabi tradition, then um, the, he didn't set up a tariqa in the in the in the normal way. I mean, the way that knowledge would be passed down normally would would be from master to student through a series of a kind of initi- initiation or a transmission. 
and Ibn Arabi didn't set that up. It was made explicit. He did do that with Conovey, and then Conovey, there is a document that we have, uh, which is his last will and testament, in which it's made quite explicit that this shouldn't happen. Oh, so, um, so this this idea Ibn Arabi did not set up a Sufi Tariqa. So, so I'm not being critical here. I'm just saying it's a different matter. Yeah. Uh, what the, the knowledge was in the books. Yes. Mm. So th th it was it was um, you know an unusual situation maybe from the beginning um, that it was always a matter that the, the, the knowledge was put into writing and then the transmission is through the writing. Mm. So although you say the knowledge of the book came without actually you know, directly to the heart, it's still the knowledge of the book mm. um, that he was, he was, um, uh, that was, that was um, happening here. Um, so in the case of Ibn Arabi, it seemed to have been, I mean, one can talk about, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say why this was the case, but it was the case that he, he didn't set up a Tariqa. He did not set up a, I mean, if you, to this day, a Mevlevi sheikh can trace a line of lineage back to, to Rumi. Do, you know, a Qadiri sheikh can trace a line of lineage back to Abdul Qadir al-Junani. But, um, but, um, but that's not the case with Ibn Arabi. There is no Tariqa like that. Um, what, what was preserved was the books. Um, so, so to that degree, one would say that um, text has a particular place within the, within the Akbarian tradition. But I think you know, the wariness that people have about text is this sort of subtle distinction that we're talking about, that it's that, again, what's required is not knowledge of the text. And then I think there is a danger with Ibn Arabi because it's so fascinating and so difficult to, know, <laughs> to understand in places. And, and, and it's so kind of, um, you know, there's so much to get your teeth into with it um, at a sort of metaphysical level that I think there, there is a danger um, of kind of over-intellectualizing. Mm. So I think the wariness that the, that, that, that's within the tradition of text is of this um, confusing knowledge about something, you know, about a text with actually knowledge of its reality, mm. of what the reality of what it's speaking about. So I think that's still, that, that sort of distinction still applies within Ibn Arabi. Um, but um, as I say, there's a special role for books. And, and you're aware maybe that there has been a very sort of special, seems to have been a very special dispensation on Ibn Arabi's books um, in the way that they've come down to us in the present day. Could you tell us about when you study these other traditions, non-duality, um, Bhagavad Gita, Taoism, etc., did they give you what you found in Ibn Arabi, or does Ibn Arabi offer uh, something far more comprehensive and universal? Well, probably, I'd probably say both, actually. I mean, for one thing, one of the points of realising it 
of looking at the other texts was because of the understanding, which is, of course, implicit to Islam anyway. There's only one, only one reality. He appears in all sorts of different forms. So, you know, so, you know, Islam would recognizes both Christianity and Judaism as being as, as being you know, valid religions and acknowledge that these are places where you know the one has revealed himself in a in 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 this form you know revealed himself in Jesus revealed himself in Muhammad revealed himself in Moses etc so one of the points of looking at the other traditions was to actually see this so to to um uh to um, to recognise the unity within within these other within these other traditions, um, and but I, at the same time, I think everything, every different revelation, if a different revelation, in general, didn't show you something new, there would be no point in the revelation, would there? <laughs> so, so every man, every different manifestation actually does show you something slightly different or enriches your enriches your understanding of of what of what the of what the unity is so i think both things are both things are simultaneously true there mm. um and it's you know it's a, also a, a a good exercise ibn arabi is very very strong on not getting fixed in a in a belief mm. so it's a very good exercise to look at another tradition, which mm. might, um, at least superficially, when you first look at it, might challenge some of your assumptions. You know, mm. so it makes you look at something and, and, and think, well, I thought it was like this, but this is saying it's different. How do I match those two? And very often you find that what happens in that process is that you're taken to a deeper understanding of what you thought. You'd put a limit, you'd understood something in a rather limited way. Mm. So, you know, so it's an expansive, that's the intention of it as an expansive exercise. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes. Uh, my father, oddly enough, became a Buddhist later in his life and had visited him at Sami Ling, uh, which is close by um, what the present place of Bashara School, uh, or for many years was the place of the Bashara School at Chisholm House in Scotland. It's just, just down the road. Um, but I hadn't, I hadn't taken to it in anything like the same way. Um, um, when when I come when when I come across it, so I mean I suppose I'd been given a little bit of a choice between um, Buddhism and and and, and Ibn Arabi, and um, Ibn Arabi Ibn Arabi just seemed like the the right thing to do at that time. But I didn't I didn't go looking. I, I was I was the opposite really, because I wasn't a person who thought that I was a spiritual seeker. I uh, um and um and looked at all the traditions and thought oh look at this one look at this one I was the opposite I I wasn't a spiritual seeker I kind of got sort of dragged into this by a sort of back door rather to my rather to my surprise <laughs> so, um, so I I dis I discovered that whole side of life through Ibn Arabi 
Mm. I did my I did this first course at the Bushara School, uh, where I was introduced to Ibn Arabi um, in my late twenties, and then I spent several years. There were several layers of courses to do with the Ibn Arabi, um, or the study um, that I I did, and then uh, and then as we as we did in my early thirties, I, you know got married, had a, a child, worked, you know, took on a mortgage, all that kind of stuff that you do. And I, continu- I continued study, um, but I was not a, you know, it was a kind of evening occupation. And then in my mid-40s, I had a period of illness. I was really, I was very chronically asthmatic. I had to take time out of had to take time out of work and um, it turned into about four years. Um, I wasn't working. And as I came out of that illness, um, the idea, I had the idea of actually going much deeper into, into into Ibn Arabi. And that's when I learned Arabic, when I started to learn Arabic. So all that time before then I'd been working in trans, I'd been using translation. But then in my late 40s, uh, I, I developed this urge to actually read the text in the original. And fortunately, there was a little space because I'd been ill. My husband's business was doing quite well. And um, I went to Oxford to do a, a master's degree um, in medieval Arabic thought which included learning medieval philosophical Arabic. So oh, wow. that's when, so then that's when, that's when I really began doing much more serious work on Ibn Arabi. And, and that's, that's how I began to do translation and my involvement in other, in other projects. So that was a kind of second phase of, of involvement. Oh, wow. So actually that's, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because um, something I wanted to ask you is around, you mentioned the grace around the text and how they've come to us. Could you tell us about um, the versions or the copies of the works of Ibn Arabi that we currently have and how they've come to us and what sort of work you've been involved in, in terms of translation? They, this was something that uh, one of the things I did to help me to learn Arabic was I became the librarian for the Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi Society, in, which is based in Oxford, which had also been founded by Boulent Ralph, um, who, who I've mentioned as the consultant to the Bishara School. So the two things were connected, but the, the founding of the Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi Society was because Boulent had been brought up within the Akbarian tradition in Turkey, and he wanted to introduce it to English speakers, but he found that there were hardly any texts available. In fact, one of the reasons we have this strange thing called the 29 pages was that there was nothing actually in, in print at the time. So he had to sort of cobble together this kind of document in order to introduce us to the, to the metaphysics. So the purpose of the Ibn Arabi Society was to encourage scholarship and translation of Ibn Arabi's works. And that was founded something like 1977. 
And it's actually been, whether it has been hugely successful or whether it was just founded at a time when there was a, a particular movement going on. But I mean, nowadays, there are hundreds and hundreds of translations of Ibn Arabi texts, and he's become very widely studied, um, both in the, in, in the Middle East and, in, and, and in, in the West, in Europe, in America. Um, but it was a complete, so that was the foundation of the Ibn Arabi Society. So I became more involved in that um, when, I, when, when I was wanting to learn Arabic. And one of the projects that, that we, we began was called the Archiving Project because uh, um, there are hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts of Ibn Arabi's works. And, the, and even then there were loads and loads of editions in Arabic, but many of them were very inaccurate because they, um, they were very late. So translation, you know, critical editions of Arabic works were being produced from very, very late manuscripts, which were, had all sorts of annotations and mistakes in them. Um, so um, there was a kind of academic drive to go back to some of the earlier texts. All those earlier texts were, are, are, are most of them, are in Turkey, they're still in Turkey, uh, in the Turkish public libraries there. Um, and something around 1998 or something like that, I can't remember, before, just mm. before the millennia, there was a terrible earthquake in Istanbul and some of the libraries were affected and we almost lost a few of the most precious manuscripts of the Akbarian tradition. And at that point, the Turks, it's different matter now, but at, at that point, the Turks were not very interested in their Ottoman heritage and these manuscripts were being kind of neglected. And there was, there was also at one point a, a major theft from the principal library where Ibn Arabi's works were kept in Konya. Um, so there was a thought that we needed to preserve this heritage just in case it all disappeared in fire and flood. <laughs> no. um, and so we set out to do to make digital copies. So we made a digital, the society, the Ibn Arabi Society has created a digital archive of the earliest manuscripts of Ibn Arabi works. And um, that, that contains something like 3000 copies of manuscripts now. So, and we created, in order to do that, I did this with my colleague, Stephen Hertenstein. And in order to do this, we had to do a lot of research um, into which were the earliest copies, where were they, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a whole research project that's gone on for the last 20, for that we started in about 2001. So about 20 years we've been, mm. we've been doing that. So that's what the society did. And that's why how my involvement came about. And what we discovered was that there are an extraordinary number of these early manuscripts. The major works by Ibn Arabi, you've already mentioned the Futuhat al-Makir, the Meccan revelations. I mean, the extraordinary thing about Meccan revelations is that we have a handwritten copy. We have Ibn Arabi's original handwritten copy um, of the second recension of that, of that book. Um, apart from one volume, there were 37 volumes, there's one volume that's a facsimile, but the rest of it is in, we have that copy in, Tur in, 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 Tur in Istanbul, 
in the, in the original hand of Ibn Arabi. And we also have not an original by Ibn Arabi of the Fasusan Hikam, but we have a copy written by Sajruddin Konavi, which was copied during a reading session with Ibn Arabi, and which Ibn Arabi signs in two places to attest to its accuracy. Mm. So we have the two major works of Ibn Arabi's. We have actual attested or autographed copies of, of, of the original text. We have actually something, and I, 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 I didn't look this up before this, in this interview, um, so I can't remember exactly figures, but we have something like 66 manuscripts which actually have Ibn Arabi's handwriting, either written by him or, or attested to by him. So, mm -hmm. so, and this is absolutely extraordinary. If you compare it with um, comparable figures, if you take um, um, Shavidin um, Sukhrawadi, for instance, who was a contemporary of his, there's one manuscript. That's much mm. more usual. I mean, this is, this, we're talking about 1240, 1240. Mm. Uh, we're talking about 800 years. So the reason for this was that there were, there were particular lines of preservation. So Sadruddin Konavi was the most important. Um, he became Ibn Arabi's literary executor. As I already said, the heritage was really in the books. So Sadruddin Konavi, who was a wealthy man, set up a special wakf in Konya where these books, the, the books were kept and preserved. Um, so the majority of them um, came, the, of the major copies, the major preserved copies came through that. And then they transferred um, in the late 20s when the Tarikas were all nationalized. Mm -hmm. um, they transferred to the Yusufiya Library, which is the little octagonal library at the gate of Mevlana's tomb, if you've ever been mm -hmm. there. Um, as you go in, there's this little octagonal building, and that's the Yusufiya Library, where mm -hmm. Ibn Arabi's heritage transferred to. But there were a couple of other lines of transmission. Um, so it's extraordinary how much of original text we have from Ibn Arabi, either written by him or I mean, actually in his handwriting or written by very close members of his circle who, are, who have attestations that they copied it accurately from the original. So the written heritage it is, has had a, um, has an extraordinary pedigree. And so that's fascinating. And so in terms of 20th century uh, printed copies, I know um, Sheikh Abdul Qadir, uh, Abdul Qadir Al-Jazairi yeah, yeah. had, had, who was deeply steeped in Akbarian metaphysics, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, had, had, had a copy made or a work sort of compiled. And Osman Yahya later on, had obviously gathered various manuscripts to come up with uh, a version. Could you tell us about the contemporary versions and, and why there was a need for that and, and whether they are as accurate as the original manuscripts that we can now access? Yes, I mean, 
yes, you realise that one of the interesting things, the reason that, again, that the in manuscript tradition is so important is you realise there was no printing in the Arabic world until mid, mid, mid 20th century, mid mm. 19th century. Yeah. So this is 1887 or something like yeah. that. We, we get the, the footer hat um, coming into print. The Ottomans didn't like printing. And there were considerable difficulties setting Arabic in, in um, you know, in lead type. And mm. so, well, so whereas we don't care about whether we have Shakespeare's original writings because we have the printed copies mm. going right back, there were no printed copies. And so, you know, hand-to-hand manuscript writing went on until the 19th century. So that's uh, 700 years. Um, when Abdul Qadir Jazairi had his um, supervised, I think it was the third imprint of the Futahat, um, he sent it to Konya, which, which was to the WAC of Sajruddin Konavi in Konya, to have it checked against the original mm-hmm. that was at that time kept there. So over the centuries, when you do the research into the manuscripts, you see that it became a little bit of a centre, not so much of pilgrimage, but I suppose a kind of scholarly pilgrimage that, you know, this whack in Konya, people would go there to copy the manuscripts and if they wanted to get the good ones. Mm-hmm. So that first copy of the footer hat was 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 um was based on the on on the original manus on the original manuscript. What Osman Yahya did in the 1960s and 70s was he was preparing what's called a critical edition. Mm. So critical edition means that you take several manuscripts and you collate them to produce the best version. Normally you would choose one version and then you'd annotate and the reason for that is that although it's wonderful to have the original autograph copy of the of the Futahat in Ibn Arabi's hand, he doesn't always put the diacriticals in. <laughs> so, um, so it's not always it's not always exactly clear what he meant. Um, sometimes it's difficult to read. His handwriting is very clear. Mm. But sometimes, nevertheless, things are difficult to read. So a critical edition is where you take different versions of the text and you you compare and collate them so that um, somebody translating has got the best possible version to, to work from. And Osman Yahya worked on the two recensions of the Futahat. That was his work because, as you've mentioned, actually, Ibn Arabi, um, Futahat al-Makir, as you know, was based on an original revelation that he had when he first went to the East in about 600. Um, this is in Hijra. Um, and he had a revelation of the of a youth circumambulating the Kaaba. And he describes that as the, uh, the inspiration for the Futahat. But the Futahat is enormous. It's 9,000 pages long in the Arabic. 37 volumes, 560 chapters. It's huge. He took 30 years to write it. So he he um so he 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 finished it in about six, the first recension in about 633. He produced a first version, complete version. And then he sat down and immediately rewrote the whole thing. 
um, over the next three years. So I think that's about 636 that the final version is, um, is, 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 is finished. And so we don't have the original of the first recension, but we have copies of it, mm-hmm. copies that people took. So Osman Yahya was doing what's called this critical edition of comparing the two recensions. Oh, I see. Um, He never completed it. He was intending it. It would have been about 30 volumes and he got to about 14, I think. Right. Something like that. We do have a good edition now, um, which is based on the Konya manuscript, um, which has been done by um, um, Sheikh al-Mansub in the Yemen. Mm -hmm. So there's a group of scholars in the Yemen um, mm-hmm. who have done some wonderful work on Ibn Arabi texts. Mm-hmm. And they have produced a really fine critical edition of the whole Futahat. Wow. And, and so just to be clear, uh, two questions. Why did Ibn Arabi write out the Futuhat again? And I, I believe the second copy was done. Uh, two years before he passed away. So he's obviously yeah, had to yeah. get three intensive years to, you know, uh, rewriting that. And and are the manuscripts currently in Konya or have they now been moved to... They're in Istanbul. Istanbul, now. yeah. Yeah, oh, they're, I see, in, right. they're both the Futahatam, the Fasus, are now mm-hmm. in the Museum of, Is- of, of Turkish and Islamic Art. Mm-hmm. In the in the center in in the center of uh, of Istanbul, where they're very well looked after, I think. Right. Um, so that answer, um, yes. Why he did it, and you'd have to ask him an Arab. You know? <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think. Uh, I think people do find. I mean, I think not huge differences, but mm-hmm. there are differences. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't know. I could imagine doing that if you've put something together. I mean, during that intermediate period when he was writing it, he was traveling mm. a lot of the time. He settled in Damascus at the end of his life, but there's an intermediate period, there's 20 years where he's mm. constantly on the move, moving, you know, Cairo to, to Damascus, to, you know, to Malatya, to, you know, all over the place to Mosul, um, so um, and and he was writing all the time when he was going. So maybe he felt it was all a bit bitty. I don't know, um, <laughs> but that's what he did. It's an extraordinary feat because he was doing other things at the same period. I mean, then the period when he rewrote it. That he was also writing out other works. He was collecting his poetry. Mm. He was doing this. He was doing that. I mean, it's an extraordinary feat of writing to have done that. Given the multitude of works, and it's really a shoreless ocean, as Chodkovich rightly says, and it's very easy to turn it into an academic exercise, especially with Chittick's books on, you know, the book, oh. uh, and. What I would like to know is often people cite Rumi as the pole or the axis of love, but clearly Ibn Arabi had a lot to say around that. So could you say something around Ibn Arabi's experience and perspective on, or teachings on love? Oh, Oh. well, 
it's probably a podcast on its own. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's a central concept to, to Ibn Arabi. It's not so often, not so poetically put as it is within Rumi, um, but it's absolutely central. Well, for one thing, one thing to say is that for Ibn Arabi, love is the underlying motive for creation. So love, er, everything is underpinned by love. So you know that there's, he loves this particular hadith could say this divine saying which is came through the mouth of the prophet muhammad but is it's from from god and so it says i was a hidden treasure and i loved to be known therefore i created the world that i i might be known so for ibn arabi this is a central hadith it's um it's absolutely kind of it's um the foundational principle for his for his understanding of what the of what the world is um and love is and love is this motivating principle for it so for him everything in creation actually has its basis in in, in love you know its beginning and also its movement so everything in creation is this movement of of, of love so that's one thing to, to, to say about him. I mean, it's a wonderful vision um, <laughs> that, um, that, that he has of, of this. And secondly, he talks personally about love. There is a, in fact, the first book that was ever brought into English by him is a book called um, The Taj Mahal Ashwak, um, the um, interpreter of, of desires, which is a cycle of poems addressed to the, the, the divine beloved, uh, mostly a female divine be, 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 beloved, um, a female Sophia, in, in which he, he talks very intimately um, about the experience of, of love um in a in a mystical in a mystical sense um so it's um so there's that aspect as there's that aspect as well that he does talk about it and talk about himself as a as as, as a lover uh, and he says he says at one point um, in some of his in the footer hat when he writes about his own um spiritual experience um and one of the interesting things about Ibn Arabi is how modern he is in that he does talk about his own spiritual experience it's unusual in 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 medieval writers they don't normally but Ibn Arabi says a lot about the teachers that he had and the experiences that he had and uh, at one point he, he says he came to a point in his life where um his, his beloved's face was with him, meaning the divine beloved was always with him. And he, and, he, and he said, I'd want to eat, but I couldn't because there was my lover's face. I couldn't eat because there, there they were. And he, and he doesn't say in this experience whether um, it was just like it was a kind of one of those things that happens for a short time or something, or whether it was something that happened for the rest of his life. He doesn't. No, you're kind of left with the, the thought that it was for the rest of his life. 
unless he was brought into into this state where you know he always felt in the presence of was always in the presence of his beloved so it's a strong it's a strong undercurrent and i think going back to your the original question about the use of the intellect and, and such like ibn arabi is very hard to understand um he's very intellectually sophisticated i'm sure you agree yeah and and i think very often that clouds people's vision of what's really going on un- underneath in terms of what he's saying about love and he and rumi are completely at one really on this matter mm. jane just a final question if you could listen in on a conversation with uh ibn arabi <laughs> and one more person who would that person be and what do you think they would say <laughs> i don't know i i'd probably say sadruddin konavi actually because right. you know sadru he he regarded sadruddin konavi as his uh he was a spiritual heir and he was he treated him like a son uh, and um there's a there's a teaching there is a, a document of their teaching sessions together where ibn arabi sadruddin khan wrote about i studied this with the sheikh and then ibn arabi signs it and says yes he did he studied this with me you know people these were like university degrees mm. you know um like the equivalent of university to sort of attestation that you had studied this i mean yes i would just love to be present at one of those teaching sessions where ibn arabi is going through the fasus with sadruddin konavi i mean i suppose mm. that's <laughs> <laughs> Super. Yes. Jane, thank you so much for your time today. And um I really look forward to picking up this discussion and maybe exploring other strands of Ibn Arabi. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again. Likewise. Mm-hmm. Likewise. And okay. until next time. Until next time, okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye now. Bye.